Molo Sanbonani, hello, how's it? Welcome to Liberty and Friends, another podcast brought to you by the Big Liberty Show, of course, and in conjunction with the Institute of Race Relations. Guys, welcome back to another uh, installment, another show in which we look at current affairs and, you know, issues that have been in the news cycle and some hard issues which we, you know, sort of go into with the uh, guest of the week. The guest this week is going to be Mr. Ian Crookshanks, who, of course, is the chief economist at the Institute of race relations we'll have him after the break but as always on liberty and friends we'll begin with my rant for the week man like what's what's some of the stuff that's annoyed your favorite fat boy this week and um you know i've sort of held my tongue on until i got to this podcast and um top of mind when it comes to that is you know the shenanigans we 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 sort of have have to endure in this country let me be precise and specific. Whilst the politicians were flapping their gums and, you know, sort of thinking that they're, they're clowns or court jesters as opposed to leaders in this country in parliament, um, the society that they're supposedly leading is literally burning. And if not burning, people are now physically burning each other. I mean, there's an incident in, I think, at the Western Cape somewhere. I think it's Cape Town and its surrounding communities in the south where, um, as far as I understand the backstory, a mother and her two children, one of whom was a toddler, were burnt alive by an unidentified male. Um, and I think there, there is a racial element to this in, in whatever context. Again, the the... the, the, the the story around this is very dodgy and it's very sketchy and I think the police have to do their work in deciphering exactly what happened and who all the players were. But effectively, what we do know is this. A mother and her two children, a coloured family, um, were set alight for whatever reason, whatever heinous reason, by a black individual um, who, as I hear, was a foreign national. What I'm assuming is they could have been in some sort of relationship and it turned sour for whatever reason because in this country... That that, that somehow means, um, you know, partners killing each other. But I, I'm suspecting that, that that's what may have happened in this case. Um, and, you know, a community lived in fear for a while, knowing, I think, not even a while, it was a day, a day, sorry. When the incident happened, it was not more than a day after that the alleged perpetrator of um, the crime of burning the, this family was then himself allegedly caught um, and also executed by by way of being hauled over hot coals and, a, and, and open flames. I mean, the video of this circulated on social media, and it's the absolute most disgusting thing. It, it I cannot get it out of my mind. It is it is literally eating into my soul to watch two individuals um, on this. Uh, video literally continuously pull this man who's screaming for his life over you know this 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 open flame this fire and of course the the people filming are you know i always call it the the, the shock spectator value you know when when you come across a a a heinous scene like that you freeze um you know, any normal person freezes because you, you come across this lugubrious sight that your 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 morality doesn't it can't in that moment tell you what to do. Um, because on the one hand, you perhaps don't believe the site because you're like, oh, am I really looking at someone being burnt alive here? And as you're processing this, literally in front of you is a man screaming for his life. And these two gentlemen 
perhaps with a false sense of justice, you know, taunting him and saying, yes, this is what you deserve uh, because you burnt uh, the, the family or whatever the case may be. So there, there's something in this which suggests that these people know each other to an extent. Um, as if you look at the data and the actual hard facts uh, on South African crime statistics generally, um, especially when it comes to murder, you know, the vast majority of murders in this country happen between people who know each other. Um, so a part of me would, would, would lean into thinking that perhaps this may be the case here, but it does need, um, and I'll get to the significant political aspect of this. I just want to focus on this particular scene for now and how I literally felt at the end of it. I cannot describe to you, dear South African, the level of depression I felt at the end of it. And even as I talk now, I'm sort of holding back tears. Because you think to yourself, what's happening in your country that people feel as though they can suspend their humanity in order to do something as shocking as this? Um, what must happen to you as a person for you to feel like I cannot trust um, the legal system? I cannot trust what is the, the legitimate role of the state, by the way, which is to, to know... Um, provide safety and security, a police force, um, and obviously to mediate our disputes, a justice system. What, what, must ha what, what goes through your mind when, upon realizing the state has completely failed you on what is its responsibility, that you feel as though you can then suspend momentarily your sense of empathy, your God-given humanity to do that to someone else, no matter what that other person has alleged to have, been, to have done? Um, and this is why, speaking to you as a classical liberal, we liberals talk a lot about the importance of the rule of law and having society based on the rule of law, number one. And number two, um, the enforcement of that via law and order, which is a legitimate role of the state. So it comes full circle then in terms of what I'm ranting about here. The failure of the state to provide and to play its role of enforcing the rule of law, of ensuring law and order, ensuring, of course, that in a country of 58 million people, 11 languages, so many cultures, of course, there'll be conflict occasionally. And that's why you need the state to play that role of mediating our disputes through a, a properly functioning judiciary and, of course, policing society, protecting us, um, the individual, the people in families, communities, protecting our life, our liberty and our property rights against people in our society who seek to infringe upon or harm those very things and in this particular instance this is why i'm angry and very emotional there has been an absolute failure by the state to protect those three very fundamental human aspects life liberty and property on all sides by the way so 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 that whatever the backstory is the, the, the common thread in it all is the absolute sheer failure of government to protect life liberty and property rights you have a family of three, two kids and a mother, dead, burned to death. And on the other side, a, a community that then felt, or individuals that then felt, let me not say the community because, you know, there's just two people in this video, allegedly, who then felt they can appropriate the law in their, into their own hands and dispense um, their form of sort of jungle justice, really, of hauling someone, a human being, over the hot open flames, as he, even as he screams for mercy, you must suspend your humanity to, in order to do something like that. But you, you get to a point, you, only can, you can only get to that point if you feel as though the state will not protect you. It doesn't actually play its role. 
guys, I'm angry. I'm very angry. And you should be too, is the point I'm making. You should be very angry that all of this is happening as politicians are literally performing for cameras in parliament. I mean, it literally happened. Presumably, it would have been happening whilst the EFF are being the court jesters and the clowns in parliament. We pay these people a lot of money every year to protect us, to do what is the role of the state. And this is what they do. They'd rather perform for cameras, be the clowns, call each other names, stand up on spurious points of order. All of these things are meaningless to a society which is literally crumbling around those, those uh, you know, sort of sacred halls of parliament where everything is so pristine and safe and clean. But the country in which it's based in is literally sliding into the precipice. No, South Africa, no. I'm sorry, I can't accept that. I can't accept that families, the, the thing that you guys know I care about, are literally under assault in a country which is, it's becoming the wild, wild west, if not worse. It can't be right, guys. It can't be right. Anyway, that's my rant for the week. And it's something which has literally been eating at my soul. I literally had to, uh, I literally had to commit this to prayer and, 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 and ask, because a lot of you know, you guys, I'm a very devout um, you know, converting Jew. So I, I, everything for me goes through the lens of what, you know, the Lord teaches. And I, I just couldn't find peace in this. I couldn't find peace in this and that humans can do this to each other. It really broke my soul. Anyway, I'll see you guys after the break. Um, my guest, who unfortunately we're going to be going to even sadder stories, sadder issues um, in the economic front, is the chief economist uh, at the Institute of Race Relations, uh, Ian Cruikshanks. We'll be looking at the upcoming budget speech that will be delivered by the finance minister in parliament. This is him basically detailing um, where government funds will be spent over the next year. So we're going to break that down, look at the political ramifications, of course, um, its impact on the economy. I'll see you guys after the short break. Hey guys, welcome back to Liberty and Friends. I'm your host, Big Daddy Liberty. And um, as I mentioned before the break, I have a very special guest in the studio, um, Mr. Ian Crookshanks from the Institute of Race Relations. We're about to have a 30-minute conversation, excuse me, um, you know, looking at the upcoming budget speech, which will be delivered by the finance minister. Remember, that's Mr. Tito Mboweni, uh, who, if you go back to my a uh, podcast about two weeks ago when I spoke to Davi Ruet, another economist, actually listed him as one of the few silver linings um, in, in, in government. You know, him and, of course, the Reserve Bank Governor, Lesejo Chanyajo, you know, two men who are perhaps holding the line to an extent in an otherwise very leftist and, you know, uh, quasi-socialist environment. But let me not waffle away. Let me introduce my guest, uh, Mr. Crookshanks. Good day to you, sir. How are you doing? Very well and good to be with you. Thank you, Zikli. It is fantastic to have you in the studio. I know we've already had a show before, a yes. podcast, but I know you've been on the show quite regularly. Um, Ian, let's let's hop straight into it. Now, obviously, I usually say let's hop into the meat and potatoes of this, but we don't really know what the speech is quite yet. So we're yeah. forecasting to an extent, and we're, we're going to be making our own views around what a reform agenda should look like if we, of course, had or rather if we were writing the speech ourselves. So before I get into this, Ian, 
The budget speech we know as South Africans is linked to what the president would have said in the weeks before it um, in the State of the Nation address. I'm going to pull out two, two or three choice quotes um, or statements, rather, from the president. And I'll, I'll do it in a very sort of Western way, um, you know, by looking at the good, the bad and the ugly. And then we're going to speak, I want you to speak to how you think the finance minister should respond to that. And then we'll take the conversation from there. So part of the good, then, let me begin with the good. So um, the minister, excuse me, the president comes out and says, you know, We've, we've recognized the absolutely shambolic state that ESCOM is and its threats to the economy. And therefore, uh, two major announcements, really. The first is um, the introduction and uh, speeding up, rather, of bringing on private producers of power into the IPP program, the Independent produ um, Power Producers Program. Um, you know, basically a, a big promise that, look, we'll expedite this process uh, so that any... Uh, private sector player who lo who can generate electricity and by the way we know that there, there already are voices in the mining uh, sector for example so they could do this they can um, have a fast-tracked um, journey into being able to uh, produce power that's the first silver lining we heard and the second one and I'll, I'll let you in just now is municipalities can buy their own electricity directly from IPPs, thereby, by and large, bypassing ESCOM, this big necrotic um, the SOE. Ian, you're the finance minister. You've listened to this. Um, do you see this as being good for the economy? I see it having a potential for being good. <coughs> yes, I think that is what counts. Is it good for the economy yet? Time will tell. I have severe doubts about whether government can hold the line on what needs to be done. I really think that it's a huge challenge that may not be surmountable under the present governing process. Mm. And this is a problem. You know, we've got a new finance, we've got a new president, really, and we've got a new uh, finance minister who is really there. He, he has been... He has been placed there uh, primarily by Mr. Ramaphosa and uh, he has taken the responsibility to speak out and say, this is the way it should be done. This is what a balanced ledger should be doing. Mm. A balanced ledger should not have massive deficits mm. as we have in, us in South Africa. We have not learned to live within our means. We have not learned to cut, cut our coat according to our cloth. We are living in a level of extravagance which is quite unacceptable mm. and it's a time to get out of this mode and to, to, to get back to the level where we can have a balanced budget. Can it be done, you'll say? Mm. It, it, it can be done. It was done before, after all, uh, under the, uh, the auspices of the... Of the uh, Oh, Ian, taking a quick sneeze over there. Um, but under the, uh, under the auspices you were saying, sorry? Under the auspices of President Becky and Finance Minister Trevor Manuel, they formed a, a, a partnership and they said to government department heads, yes, we know that we need a new railway system, we need a new ra railroad, we need a new bridge, whatever. Mm. But we haven't got any money, so no, you can't have it. But trade dependent, we can't do it, period, if we haven't got any money. Mm. And that was their stock answer. It's about time we woke up to that. At that stage, we went from a government de deficit, which had been around 20%, down to close to zero. We had a balanced budget. That had never happened under the previous dispensation, so that was a massive step forward. So, yes, it can be done. Can it be done in right now? I, I want to quickly no. come in here, Ian, because 
unfortunately, I was about to say, um, in terms of how I broke this down, the good, the bad, the ugly, the good pretty much ends there. Um, yes. And you, you've, you've, you've cited it already, <laughs> just how, how much of the bad is sort of waiting to sort of, you know, burst out of, of, of in, uh, um, in, into the fray here. So let, let's go into the bad. Ian, ESCOM, the absolute mess that it is. Let me cite um, economist Davi Rutt yes. on a previous podcast, his words almost verbatim. If we continue to have load shedding, if we continue to have an ESCOM, which is essentially unable to um, uh, get to the, the, the helm of this issue, the South African economy will never grow beyond 1%. The yes. 1% is a cap. It isn't where we'll be, it is a cap. And even with that cap, we won't even be anywhere near reaching that 1%. Do you agree? And how much of a problem has ESCOM been? ESCOM has been a major part of the problem, and yes, I do agree. I wish people would stop asking me what my forecast is for the growth rate. The South African economy has gone X growth. We don't have a growth rate, we have a shrinkage rate. And we've got to wake up to this as a fact. If we take the first three quarters in the last year over the previous year, it was negative. Mm. A negative performance cannot be introduced as what growth rate was that. And I'm afraid the fourth quarter, the, the, the short-term data there said that we were going to have more of that. As far as ESCOM is concerned, uh, ESCOM has been enforced, the only major power producer in South Africa, without power, without a regular, reliable, cost-effective power supply we cannot run industry mining agriculture the main sectors of the economy if we can't do that we haven't got an economy it's going to steadily shrink whereas we, as i said we're shrinking into somewhere between a low and a no growth scenario mm. and the risk is towards further negative rather than positive people say negative growth of so, so much it's not negative growth it's shrinkage mm. we must wake up to that is the real situation and if and realize we've got huge barriers to overcome they've been overcome before it will have to be done again with a great deal of discomfort you, you, you raise the issue of growth super important because then when Darby and again I'm sorry to cite Darby the whole That's time okay. but, but there's so much um, synergy in, in what economists in this country are beginning to point out as being the problem Davi raises the second point. He says, it's been a big problem that the, the size of the state has been continuously grown. The size of the wage bill has grown. In fact, we know that the, the, the biggest state collection um, uh, avenue, that is personal income taxes, in and of themselves, um, you know, are unable to even match um, the, the wage bill in this country. So we have a big problem, of course, of a massive bloated state. Now, this problem should be viewed in the context of a no-growth environment yes. at all. So the size of the state is super bloated. You know, it's good times in government, of course, but it's really, in the context of a country that's not growing, a really big issue. And then he links this, of course, as Darby Wood, um, and I want you to speak to this, to um, the debt um, almost crisis, that we're not even almost, the debt crisis we're now spiraling into. Talk to us, Ian, about those three facets, how they're linked, and how the finance minister, of course, should be able to speak to this. But those three areas, debt, the size of government, and the poor growth environment. Right, they certainly are very closely linked. There's no doubt about that. And they've got out of control. Just look at the size of government. Uh, if one looks at where there are growth areas, the only one we're seeing with ongoing positive growth is government. Does it pay its way? No. It relies on the rest of the economies to support it in a very in a way where it makes no contribution itself. So that is that is the first point there. 
Then we've got to say, well, what does that mean to government debt, you ask that? Well, if we're running on a deficit, what is a deficit? It means that we are spending more than we're earning. We end up at the end of the year owing more than we actually did at the beginning of the year. What does that do? It pushes up government debt. What is government debt? It's the obligation by the government to, se- to settle its own negative balances uh, directly to those who have advanced funds to, to government. What is going to happen? Well, I think what we're going to find is the cost of accessing funding, as uh, if we look at our credit record, is going to get more expensive, mm. it's going to be harder to find, and what does that mean? That means likely to see higher interest rates and possibly less credit available in any case. And this is a serious situation. We've had it before. Uh, in, in, the, in the late eight, 1980s when the, the bankers of the world said, I'm sorry, South Africa, you can't have any more. Please, sir, we're desperate. Mm. It, it was, they paid no attention and we had to go and make new arrangements and borrow at spurious rates from wherever we could get it. So I think that, you know, we see this, how far is this debt run out of control? Well, when they say that, first of all, let's look at the budget deficit, over 3% is worrying. I think we're heading towards something like 7%. I think Darby's looking at a similar sort of number. This is crisis. It's critical. It means we are paying more in interest than we're actually earning on that capital. It's not sustainable. Then we say, well, what about the size of the debt? What it is doing is pushing up the debt level, which in the early 2000s got to a low level of under... T- in fact, it got to a ba- balance level. The debt itself was under 10%. Um, the, the, the annual budget was balanced. And here we're looking at the possibility that South Africa's debt-to-GDP ratio could go over 60%, could be, in fact, approaching a higher level than that. Wow. Does, is that good or bad? That's terrible. Mm. That's absolutely terrible. Over 30% is looked at as being very worrying. We're more than double that. And I think what that says is, it just says, we're going to find it difficult to access debt. We're going to find out we have no p- nobody left from whom we can borrow. We'll have to go and cry on the shoulders of the IMF if they're willing to listen to us, if they're willing to hand us a tissue to dry our tears. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that they will be willing to because otherwise they risk their own capital in which it may be an irrecoverable situation. That is it. Is it irrecoverable? At the moment, it's looking that way. Mm-hmm. It, you know, Ian, you... <laughs> and again, I, one, one can only sort of chuckle because really it, it's, it's, it's the perfect storm, isn't yes. it? It is literally, we're sailing a, a very small raft with, uh, I don't even know if we have any paddles anymore, into a very, very massive storm. And it's all self-inflicted. You have a yes. captain at the helm and you know a, a, a crew, if you will, who are literally merrily singing and drinking on this, if I, if I stay with this analogy, as we head into the storm. Um, Ian, I, I want to zoom in on this issue to, to an extent, and I want, I'm going to put something to you now. I, I wonder what your view is. The finance minister then stands in front of us next week delivering this, um, the uh, budget okay. for, for, uh, for, the, for the upcoming financial year. And... Let's, let's magically say you're standing right next to him and you're able to pepper him with questions as he talks that he must address in that moment. One of the questions, um, and I, I want you to be hypothetical, one of the questions, I'll, if I were you in that instance, it would, I'd ask him would be, where exactly, or rather, how much of a cut 
dear minister, is required in government for us to sort of get to a point where we're beginning to not only balance the budget based on cuts, because we're not growing our way out of it, the, yeah. the problem. So we have to cut, essentially. How much of a cut, in your estimation, uh, and I want you to play the minister, uh, Ian, in this regard, um, how much of a cut um, should we be looking at 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 this point in order to sort of try and get ourselves to a, a point of balance. Now, I don't want you to necessarily go into fine numbers, but you can give me a rough percentage of, in your estimation, the sort of cuts that are now required if we're to just balance the budget at this point. So much needs to be cut that we couldn't do it in a year. Yeah. We couldn't do it all in one year, otherwise the whole economy would grind to a halt. Mm. Remembering, as we said a moment ago, government spending is the biggest spending in the, in, in, in the country. Mm. So I think what we'd have to say then is we've got to have a plan three years minimum, preferably longer, if Parliament will allow us to, to have that much time. So the Finance Minister's got to be sure he has the, the President behind him. Mm. Is he? Well, we'll face that in a moment. But in the meantime, I think we have to say that government spending, spending should attempt to be halved as a starting point. And then we have to ask the question, allied to that, would Parliament go along with it? Mm. And that's a question which is unanswerable in advance. But nevertheless, I feel sure that the Finance Minister and the President must have had some person-to-person -person talks to say how much can we do, how much of a shock can we give the nation? Because mm. it will be a national shock. Will, will there be a realisation that we're going to have to drastically increase taxes, drastically decrease social benefits, and really find an economy that is destined to go backwards and shrink for the foreseeable future? Foreseeable future, how long is that? Three years, maybe five years. That, now, that, that should scare anybody. It should. Um, I mean, that's, that's literally... Um, oh my, I don't even have the words. Yeah. Um, I'm a little uh, sh shocked here, but... Ian, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that same scenario. You play the finance minister, and I'll, I'll play Ian in this regard. Okay. Um, I then ask the minister the, the next question, and I say, uh, Mr. Minister, I hear that you, you know, as a rough figure, you're saying let's look at, you know, sort of perhaps even halving the, the size of the state at this, at this point. You know, things are at they're that bad. Desperate. Um, what do we do then to get the growth? side of it so because surely those two things must happen simultaneously the cutting of the state isn't the panacea it has to be coupled with of course um the sort of economic reforms that grow the economy simultaneously um so let me put that directly to you and ian you can be broad on this one now the the sort of reform agenda we now must embark on if you were the minister what would it be talk me through it there are three major points where we have to get internally investment, fixed capital investment going, and then also we get outsiders to commit foreign capital to South Africa. The first thing is to have an surety on the value of assets. We can't say to a foreigner, bring in so many dollars and I will invest 90% of them, the rest of 10 is my commission for doing it. Mm. And then in a year's time, come back and say, that's a nice looking business. Sorry, the introductory commission is 20% and I'll take it up front and I'll pay it in, have it paid in cash. Mm. That doesn't work. You can't plan a business under those sort of circumstances. Foreigners will say, but we're working on a 2% gross margin or even a 2% net margin. Give us a little bit of space there. Uh, and you've taken all of that several times over. Mm. That, that we can't run a business like that. Secondly, they will say, and we've had it said to us, to run industry and mining and agriculture, there has to be a constant, reliable cost-effective 
electricity supply. We haven't got that. Are we capable of producing it? Not under the present Eskom situation. And thirdly, uh, your labor movement has to understand that there's a straight line between productivity and reward. Yes, we'd like to pay the workers more, but they have to do their bit in producing more. You know, an American, uh, in, uh, an American industrialist said, but let's compare our output. If we say that your workers produce two, two units per day, in America, it's five units per day. Mm. In China, it's six units per day. Now tell me why I should invest in South Africa with a new fixed capital c- commitment and with very uh, doubtful outlook for any gain from there. Th- this is the, 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 just the internal process that we have to face. If we don't, we don't get that access to capital, and this is critical. Mm. I hear these reforms, Ian, and... I want us to delve into the other threats then, because remember I said there'll be the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we've really spent quite a bit already on the bad. Um, unfortunately, dear listener, gird your loins, it gets even worse. Um, let's look at the absolute ugly and what we would argue the finance minister should say to address these threats. Ian, I must begin top of mind when it comes to the ugly environment we find ourselves in, expropriation without compensation. Yeah. You simply cannot grow an economy. You cannot create a property-earning and prosperous society if the government under which those people live in threatens to have the power, threatens to accord itself the power, rather, yeah. to be able to confiscate something with, from you without compensating, uh, it, uh, compensating you f- sorry, for it. In other words, in layman's terms, theft, really, because that's what it really is. Yes, it's um, legalized theft. Absolutely. Ian, talk to me. You are the finance minister. What do you say to this this policy? And um, as you answer this question, think about the political ramifications too. Do you say something along the lines of no? Um, let's go ahead with the policy, but never use it, or let's kind of go ahead, but temper how much power the state gets. Um, in, in, you know, in terms of being able to dis- dispense with this this power that it wants, or do you say, you know, no, stuff it. We we don't we don't do this at all. How would you answer that question? I know I'm being very hypothetical here, but how would you answer that? A that member of the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Secretary of State was here recently, and he said, if you legalize expropriation without compensation, if you announce your intention to put it through the, the bill through Parliament. We will not be here. We will not invest in South Africa. Period. Mm. There's nothing more to it. That is it. That is, as I said, legalized piracy. And we can't, we can't have that. And I think that uh, if we want to be part of the global being of industry and, and, and mining and, and in the industries which will help us get ahead, we've, of course we've got to have a conducive outside environment. But we've got to be able to manage it legally in a responsible manner that is irresponsible of course you're mentioning the u.s secretary of state mike pompeo who's speaking in ethiopia um and his his words exactly that you know he basically said that you know if if south africa goes down this road um it would be catastrophic to their economy It, it just simply would destroy it now that's a very serious warning to be getting from one of your largest trading partners um one of whom by the way you know has many of these preferential um, trade arrangements yes. with us that allow our goods and services into their economy. Um, Ian, let's look at the ramifications, therefore. Let's say, uh, remember those three options I gave you. Let's say you as finance minister say, look, I'll, I'll side with the party line and say, let's go ahead with EWC. 
Talk to me about some of the international ramifications that can happen. Would we just sort of um, merrily go along um, or will there be some serious, serious problems economically if we go with this policy of EWC? Let us go back 30, 35 years. I think that's about how long ago it was that we had uh, uh, the infamous speech by President Bota saying we'd go it alone. We didn't need the rest of the world. The Rubicon speech. I actually watched it on television and it was terrifying mm-hmm. as Mr. Bota thumbed his, his nose at the rest of the world. And so what happened? The bankers of the world said, well, if you want credit for us, we're not going to let you have it. And by the way, you have some outstanding loans. Mm-hmm. They're immediately repayable. Well, the economy went backwards for three or four or five years in a row. Mm. The population was growing. We were all getting a lot poorer, very much quicker. And I think uh, what happened was the outcome was that after so many years, the the South African Reserve Bank and others, there were a couple of responsible managers of of government still there, had to put on their best dress, go over to to the Swiss gnomes of Zurich and say, please, we, we need some help. And we were given conditions under which we would get loans to start up the economy. This is what it's going to come to. If we have nowhere else to go, there's always the IMF. We have made deposits to them over time, and maybe we can draw on that. But there will be conditions which say, these are the conditions, these are the international rules that should apply. If you are prepared to stick to those, we'll help you out of your sticky mess. Can we do it? Well, it remains to be seen. Uh, Unfortunately, our government quotes countries like Venezuela, where chaos rules. Yeah. We can't have that, and I believe that that is one of the situations we are currently moving towards. In fact, let me just bring out, a, I'm just reading it right now, a press release from the Economic Freedom Fighters, the red in tooth and claw commies in this country, mm. who are basically responding to those words from US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Um, and the gist of their, their press release is, you know, uh, these are senseless utterances by the U.S. Secretary um, when he was referring to the issue of um, land expropriation. And in fact, they go on to say that the scaremongering in their, in their assessment um, of using Zimbabwe and Tanzania, these are two examples mm-hmm. that the Secretary used. Uh, Zimbabwe, of course, with the Mugabe's uh, policy of land confiscation sure. over there, and uh, more specifically under Tanzania, uh, although he didn't go into the details, what he was referring to was uh, Julius Nyerere's policy of Ujamaa, which literally saw the collectivization of uh, and the ownership mm-hmm. of all land in the state, and that saw mass famine and, and sort of all sorts of issues there. Anyway, um, the FF contend that, oh, he's just using these two examples to scare manga. What it really is, is um, a failure in their words, um, to remove the sanctions and trade embargoes that undermine and continue to undermine uh, socialist alternative economies. Let's have this conversation, uh, Ian, on here, because I think it has to be completely eviscerated um, by us. The, this, this fallacious idea they seem to be spinning in the statement that you can have a socialist alternative um, economy. Ian, talk to me about why this is fallacious when we look at the 20th century and the failure of the socialist project. Literally, South Africa will head down the level that Zimbabwe is. They run out of money. They run out of the ability to settle international trade. What does that mean? They are a net importer of food. People start to starve. Literally, there's nothing to feed them. 
And, you know, uh, there are no farmers, commercial farmers of any significant size left, or those that are can maybe feed themselves and not much more. And I think that this problem uh, is going to be one where what would happen if that did develop? It would mean there would be social chaos. We'd have people moving in all directions away from the country, mm. and it would be like a plague with its center, Zimbabwe. Mm. And uh, if that happened in South Africa, it would be the same sort of thing. In I, I wanted to actually quickly jump in here because I wanted to make a quick point myself around just how asinine these damn ideas are and, you know, how we've actually got to begin to call out these leftist politicians actually quite aggressively. Let me, let me use a practical example for you, dear listener. Let's take two countries, Pakistan and the United States of America. In one of those countries, or rather, no, let, let me go closer to home. Pakistan, oh, sorry, the United States and um, Venezuela, um, um, <laughs> I said closer to home than I picked Venezuela. Um, the United States of America and Zimbabwe, that's the example I want to use. A farmer in Zimbabwe, with a subsistence or whatever vestige of commercial farming they still have there, works harder, actually works harder than a farmer in the USA. However, the farmer in the USA, his, he's more productive than a farmer in um, Zimbabwe. And why, you're asking? It's the amount of capital invested into a secure property um, that makes the difference. The farmer in America is able to get capital, in other words, money to farm, money which he can use to innovate, to invest in other capital equipment, big combines and tractors and the like. All these things that he's able to access, even though he doesn't have the money up front, and he's able to access them because he has a title deed to his land and he uses his land as surety for a loan. So that's the capital he uses then to be productive and to be very productive on his land. The farmer in Zimbabwe is unable to do that because he not only does he not only does he not own his farm, it's owned by the state, he has to beg that very same state um, for any subsistence or uh, funding, if there is any funding, and because of that inconsistency and that uncertainty, is unable to produce at the same level as a farmer in wherever in the world where there's property rights. So that farmer then uses rudimentary tools. A you know his capital investment in his farm is a cow and a plow behind it. So that even though, as I said, he works harder than the farmer in the U.S. or Canada or wherever, he produces less. And because he produces less, he's not able to show up at market and make full value um, and be competitive with his counterparts from across the world. So there it is. In, in, a, in a short example, perhaps, I've detailed to you why it is very dangerous for any government to then suggest that it should have the power to take away the ability of an individual in society to say that I own this. I can fence it off, I can innovate, I can invest in it, I can derive value from it. It is very dangerous for any government to be given that sort of power. And if you think, and as Ian rightly pointed out, that somehow if we do it here, and as these uh, commies in the EFF suggest, that, oh, you know, we're just scaremongering when we talk about examples like Zimbabwe and Tanzania with Ujama. If you think, if you want to believe <laughs> that fallacy, that it's just scaremongering, then I have very bad news for you. You will be one of the first in the breadlines, one of the first in the breadlines in a completely collapsed economy. And unlike, you know, um, 
actually, let me not, let me not go into that latter part. Um, I'll save that for next week. But Ian, <laughs> I, I had to have that little mini rant within our interview as we head into the last five minutes of our conversation because people don't understand the power of property rights. They sort of think it's, oh, it's a white thing. Of course, white people would argue because we blacks don't have uh, property rights historically. And you have to point out to them that, yes, that's the problem. Black South Africans historically have been denied property rights and therefore giving this current government the same power to deny South Africans property rights would not only harm the whites that you rail against as, as dear lefty, wherever you are, um, but also the very blacks that you, you claim to trade on their behalf. Um, isn't it, Ian? Yes. You know, uh, I've done some research for certain of the political parties and one of them said, I can't see what the problem is in this land question. Oh, said, my. You took it from us, we'll take it back. But who developed it? Who, who begged, borrowed, got capital, invested it, and saw found markets, found international markets, made us part of that international community? Well, it was those people who were actually working all day, every day, uh, and not sitting in the sun waiting to be helped. And that's why it's important, just to agree with you, that's why it's important to bring in those, instead of destroying that value, bring in those who've been left out. Yes. Um, make them the sort of productive um, you know, commercial farmers. Because right now, that's not the intention of this government. I mean, we have an example, Ian, of a farmer in uh, Limpopo or the Northwest. Uh, I stand corrected on where, but uh, Mr. Rajase, um, he Ian, was a beneficiary of, of land reform back in the mid, uh, early 90s. Um, you know, he, he got the land um, and has been working it in uh, up to a commercial level and has been trying to buy it from the state yeah. since then. Um, I mean, this chap has literally said, look, I've done everything right. I'm a productive commercial farmer. Give me the right, damn it, to buy this land, own it so I can have a title deed so that I can access further capital that allows me to grow my business and to become the sort of commercial farmer that I can be. And who stood in his way, uh, Ian? It wasn't the white farmers that are in his area. They were trying to help him along. Absolutely. Who stood in his way, Ian, was the very same government that claims to trade on his behalf. Um, In fact, they were taken to court by various interest groups, including the Democratic Alliance, I believe, um, essentially trying to compel the damn state to sell this man the land. Um, again, this is not charity, dear listener. He was not yes. asking for charity. He was saying, I've got the money at market value. I will buy this piece of land um, and because I want to progress with my life and make something of myself. And it is the state, Ian that is standing in the way of the ordinary, if we broaden this conversation for a a minute, it is the state invariably that stands in the way of the little man in this country from succeeding, isn't it? Absolutely. Here is your farmer who says, I don't want a handout. You don't have to give it to me. I may feel it's deserved. I'll buy it at the going rate. And if if he is a a commercial farmer of, of, of significant worth, He'll say, I know how to make a return out of this. I know how to support my, pe- my people, my family, Absolutely. my community, and I can grow this whole uh, in- into, a, into a viable business because that's what farming is about. Absolutely. It's the business of food production. And if, he, if you allow him to do that, then, th- then you allow him to progress the whole country. Until we do that, we're stuck in a morass. Absolutely. Ian, as we conclude, final thoughts. Let's come back to the speech now, because I think we've, we've looked at the, um, 
the influences, the inputs that can go into it. Um, you know, we've looked at the politi political ramifications. We've looked at what needs to happen. Uh, you've given your views around what, what are some of the reforms that should be um, touted in the speech. As we conclude our thoughts in our last minute, talk to me, Ian, about the importance of Tito Mboweni, the finance minister, next week, Wednesday, I think. Why is it important for him to not miss this opportunity to talk about reform. Um, where are we right now as a country in terms of how desperate things are for the need for this man to actually set the agenda and inspire that confidence in the markets that is so sorely needed right now? In accounting back in the days when I was an, an accounts clerk, they said the first rule is remember, establish the source and application of funding. The source is dry, all but dried up. We've used up all our, our, the abilities we had. Um, the application has been misappropriation of funds. These are two basic accounting problems which we have neglected. And I think the minister is going to have to say, we've got to balance our books. We've got to live within our means. We've got to ex stop this extravaganza. This is becoming pitiful. It's so lacking of, of, of logic, and I'm afraid uh, until these basic accounting lessons are learned, that you can't run a deficit that you can't afford, that if we don't sort this out, we're going to have a mass of desperate, hungry people that are going to force violent change upon us. That is what we have to avoid at the cost of, of Mr. Mbueni's speech. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Mr. Ian Crookshanks from the Institute of Race Relations. He is their chief economist. Ian, of course, can be found on social media. If you go to Twitter, it is at Ian Crookshanks. Crookshanks spelled C-R-U-I-C-K-S-H-A-N-K-S. -S. Ian Crookshanks, at Ian Crookshanks. And he also has a daily podcast that he puts out, a uh, midday roundup of the markets and uh, the economy and some thought areas that he would suggest you need to be thinking about when it comes to the economy. You'll find that, of course, on The Daily Friend, www.dailyfriend.co.za. A big thank you to Ian on that one. And uh, a big thank you, dear listener, for listening to uh, this week's episode of Liberty and Friends. As we look ahead to the um, upcoming State of the Nation, oh, excuse me, upcoming budget speech by the Finance Minister Tito Mboweni. Um, let me know in the comments, what do you think um, the, the Finance Minister should be speaking about? You know, um, What are your hopes? Do you have any sense of hope that the speech will you know, begin to address um, some of the maybe daily lived experiences of how bad things may be in your life? Um, make it personal. Drop a comment in the comment section. Of course, I am beginning to release this this podcast on both the IONO platform, which filters into any of your social media, uh, excuse me, your, your podcast listening platforms, and of course on YouTube. I do upload these on YouTube. So please drop a comment, like, share, and subscribe to the Big Liberty Show and Big Daddy Liberty. Guys, I have some very big changes coming um, in the upcoming weeks. I will announce that. Um, good stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's very good stuff. And uh, yeah, as I said, thank you for listening. Remember, as I always say at the end of my shows, never trust a commie.